Hello, and welcome back to the Expanding Eyes podcast and to our discussion of Homer's Odyssey as we have been moving through it now to exactly the halfway point, book 13 out of 24. And I hope you've been enjoying it. I, I enjoy immensely talking about the Odyssey, and I, I hope the enthusiasm is contagious. And here we are at halfway, and that is more in the case of the Odyssey than counting pages or line numbers. The Odyssey is a remarkably patterned book, symmetrically patterned. How that is possible in an originally oral work of literature designed for performance will always perhaps be something of a mystery, but it is definitely undeniably true. And the largest of the patterns in contrast is that between the first half and the second half, books 1 through 12 out of 24 books and 13 through 24. And we have just arrived right at that point. In the first half of the Odyssey, everyone is in motion. The main characters are wandering. Telemachus wandering in search of news of his father. Odysseus wandering through his adventures trying to get back home. In book 13, the Phaeacians deposit Odysseus although he's asleep and doesn't know it. We'll get back to that in a moment. They deposit him, however, on the shore of the island of Ithaca and depart. And from that point, the action never moves from the island. It's a complete contrast. Odysseus wakes up and is disoriented. He doesn't because he's been asleep, he doesn't know where he is. He has that feeling of disoriented unreality that you sometimes have if you wake up in a strange place and for a moment don't know who, where you are. And the irony is he's standing on his home island, the island that he has tried for so many years to get back to and cannot recognize it because his guardian goddess Athena, who may be his patron goddess but who likes to play with his head every so often, has disguised the landscape so that with a fog so that he can't tell that he's standing on his homeland. Then, to play with his head just a little bit more, she comes up in disguise as usual as a male, as usual with Athena, for whatever gender-bending reason, and a young shepherd, and begins to query Odysseus just to see, just to see what he'll do. And sure enough, he gives one of his unending series of false identities. He tells a lie about his identity. We will begin to meet. We have already met it, but I haven't made a point of it, perhaps. We will begin to meet and draw the threads together more concertedly. This theme of storytelling in general, 
but in particular, the kind of false stories that we call lies. In to foreshadow that theme, we can say that stories have power, potentially stories which so-called realists sometimes dismiss as eh, that English major stuff, that stuff that's people telling stories. I like the real world. I don't want stories, which is a very shallow, naive attitude because, as Odysseus well knows, stories have power because they shape people's sense of reality. You tell a story, you convince somebody to look at things or believe things in the way that the story suggests, and you have manipulated that person. That is a very, potentially a very great power. And especially if those stories are lies, that power can be weaponized. And that is what Odysseus does time after time. He is a storyteller. We have seen him for four books, 9 through 12, recount his wanderings. But he is also a practiced, consummate, very enthusiastic liar. And we've all been brought up to say, well, we shouldn't tell lies. If you're from the United States like me, you learned the old apocryphal story about George Washington as a boy chopping down the cherry tree and saying, I cannot tell a lie. I did it because it's not, it's wrong to lie. Well, Odysseus lies through his teeth time after time. And he uses this as a weapon just as powerful as the bow that he will later recover his chief weapon later. And he is very good at it, so good at it that he seems to be one of those. You, you hear tell of uh, children sometimes who have to be reconditioned or uh, put in line a little bit because they discover the joy of telling lies, basically, of making up stories. It's fun, and it's exhilarating, and it is apparently that way to our guy Odysseus because he constantly lies, and he lies his way across the island of Ithaca in disguise, <clears throat> giving a false story of his identity time after time, and every time different, just apparently out of the sheer exuberance of being able to invent. And here, with Athena, he gives the first of these stories. The one thing in his various false ideas that seems to remain a constant, make of it what we will, is the fact that he says over and over that he comes from the island of Crete, the last surviving location of the mother goddess cultures. Is that significant and a thread added to the pattern of possible imagery surviving in figures like Arete and Circe of the old pre-patriarchal goddess cultures? Eh, it depends on how you interpret, what weight you sift the evidence, and what weight you think this has compared to that. But at any rate, 
he lies to Athena's face, and a famous moment in the Odyssey, an amazing moment in literature. At this, and I'm quoting here, at this the gray-eyed goddess Athena smiled and gave him a caress. Her looks changed now, so she seemed a woman, tall and beautiful. Whoever gets around you must be sharp and guileful as a snake. Even a god might bow to you in ways of dissimulation. You, you chameleon, bottomless bag of tricks. Here in your own country, would you not give your stratagems a rest or stop spellbinding for an instant? You play a part as if it were your own tough skin. No more of this, though. Two of a kind we are, contrivers both. Of all men now alive, you are the best in plots and storytelling. My own fame is for wisdom among the gods, deceptions too. Would even you have guessed that I am Pallas Athena, daughter of Zeus? And her speech goes on after she gets done complimenting herself. I mean, you know, great, great disguise, huh? It's an amazing moment if you know the context of this. Gods and goddesses usually keep quite a distance from mortals. And one of the biggest mistakes that the mortals can make is to get a little too familiar or imply a little bit too much equality. But here, <clears throat> Athena, first of all, shows herself in her real form turns back into her actual female form, which is vanishingly rare <clears throat> in the Homeric epics. Almost always the gods, whoever it is, the god or goddess appears in a disguise. Here she reveals himself, herself and says, two of a kind we are. She puts him momentarily in a qualified way on her level. Two of a kind in what way? Contrivers, storytellers, liars. That's us. My own fame is for wisdom, including deceptions, and you are the best in plots and storytelling. She puts him on a level of equality and speaking of how you uh, decide to give weight to a bit of detail or evidence in a text or not, she gave him a caress. Is she being flirtatious? And it's open to interpretation. If so, that's an equally supreme compliment. I've already said about Odysseus, the feminine follows him wherever he goes. Some guys, it's just that way. And here, even the goddess, possibly being a bit flirtatious, certainly to give him a caress is quite a gesture of some sort. So it is a famous moment because this is utterly not the way 
that gods and goddesses usually relate to mortals on this close level of at least comradeship. And if she is flirting with him, it's even more amazing because she is the virgin goddess, the warrior goddess, wearing armor. She doesn't even have a mother. She's so patriarchal that she sprang from the forehead of her father, Zeus. So it's an amazing moment. And from that point, the plot moves forward. And we will begin moving, as I had said last time, a bit more quickly through the second half than the first, not really skipping anything, but perhaps summarizing more than we are dramatizing, because a good deal of the second half is plotting and counterplotting that we can, as I say, synopsize in a rather efficient way that will get rid of a possible element of tedium, all the chess playing. But there is chess playing because there has to be. Somehow or other, this has to be turned around. The odds are preposterously against Odysseus. We slowly make a roster of the good guys versus the bad guys in part two. And we will gather as the books move forward. We will <clears throat> see the good and bad characters, major and minor, introduced one after the other. And we add them to the roster. But to jump ahead and sum up, on the side of the good guys, we will eventually have Odysseus, his son Telemachus, good man but young and untried, Eumaeus, a swine herder, what good is he going to be? Is he going to sick the attack pigs on the suitors or what? And the sarcasm is intended in a serious way that this is a very unlikely ally. And note that it's an ally from the lower classes, the very lowest, to herd pigs for a living in what is usually a very elite aristocratic genre. The Odyssey is different as it is different in so many ways in giving this look at all at the lower orders, the working class so-called. Uh, and not only that, but for some of them, complimenting them, showing them in a rather noble light despite their class situation. Eventually on the side of the good guys at a late point in book 20 there will be a cattle foreman named Philoetios. Okay, four people. On the other side we have 108 suitors. These are young men from the neighboring islands and at one point in the text there has been a catalog listing how many from each of the islands you added up and the number is 108. To which we add a chief evil working class figure, Melanthios, the goat herder. So we have a swine herd, a cattle foreman, and a goat herder. All herdsmen, all 
uh, people with herds of animals. Reason probably being that Ithaca is, to, in actuality, a rough, rugged, rocky country that would probably be, not be all that easy to farm. So the lower class is going to more typically be herdsmen rather than farmers. So we get these lower order people, but 108 suitors. There are a few cameo performances of evil lower class characters as well, but Melanthius is the main one. And the plot starts there in the sense that Odysseus and Athena have to start putting their heads together. This one has to be won by strategy. Even Achilles couldn't go up against 108 suitors all by himself. It's got to be won by some kind of strategy, some type of trickery, or trickeries plural. And of course, this is where Odysseus is right at home. And that's what we begin to see. Odysseus has, it is, the narrator does not comment on it, but we notice that Odysseus has, as a preliminary strategy, landed as Agamemnon had advised him to do in the underworld, on the other side of the island, don't just walk in the door. I tried that, Agamemnon said, and it didn't go well. His wife and her lover murdered him as he came home. We don't accept Agamemnon's rampant misogyny, but, and neither does Homer, clearly, but Odysseus is cautious enough, women, can you trust them, is a rather anxious, ambivalent theme that pervades the Odyssey. And in a word, the answer is, well, you know, they're human beings. Some of them, no. Clytemnestra, no. Circe, well, not until you kind of tame her. Other women, Penelope, Arete, yes. So it's not a black and white view, as it is a complex view of gender, not entirely enlightened by our standards, but certainly trying hard to think about the question. More of that later. But Athena and Odysseus have to use strategy to even up the odds. We land on the other side of the island, and then Athena disguises Odysseus. We heard Helen tell the story of Odysseus disguising himself as a beggar in order to go on a spying ep expedition within the walls of Troy back in the Trojan War. Well, now he's going to reprise his old role and be dressed as an old begging down and out sailor and go across the island to the palace and scout out the territory in disguise first and think it through. So that's where we're going after book 13. The trickery is native to Odysseus. Some scholars speculate 
that just as there may be remnants of the goddess culture mythologies in some of the female figures, that Odysseus may have some relationship to the type of figure, the generic figure in many mythologies known as the trickster. Many mythologies, European and non-European. In European, we have Loki in Norse mythology, not to mention Thor movies. In many Native American mythologies, there are tricksters often in animal form, like coyote. But they are not. They are interesting. They're fascinating figures. There is a whole famous book on trickster figures by the early anthropologist Paul Radden called The Trickster. They are not good. They are not evil. They are ambiguous. And our feelings about them are a mixture of sympathy and admiration with ridicule and possibly even disapproval. And the later career, not to mention what he does in the Odyssey, but the later career of Odysseus, as he is portrayed in later literature, all the way down at least to Shakespeare's play, Troilus and Cressida, is as this cunning figure that other people find it difficult to like because they're a little afraid of him. He's so intelligent and he's so capable of deception and he's often not quite liked by other people. It's always interesting when I teach in class to ask students, do they like Odysseus? And for what it's worth, the anecdotal evidence over many years of teaching it, it's divided. I would say more people like him than not, but there are some people who just love him and some other people who just have no use for him. We shall see what we think of it. At any rate, one of the things that trickster figures can often do in mythology is shape-shifting, and we've already had a shape-shifter in, in the Odyssey, Proteus, the old man of the sea. In a sense, with the help of Athena's makeup kit, Odysseus himself is a shapeshifter in a slightly more realistic way. He is cleverly disguised. He has arrived, and we move to book 14, moving forward. He has arrived in book 14 at the hut on the other side of the island, which is vacant, uh, which is wilderness, vacant except for the swineherd Eumaeus. And even he has migrated there. He used to be down with all of the uh, rest of the community on the other side of the island, but he has despised the suitors so much that he's moved all the way across the island into solitude, except for the company of his pigs. And there is a, one of those anomalous passages. Who knows what you make of it? Does this count as symbolic? Take your choice. Where he says he's very proud of the fact that in the years his master has been gone, he has increased the flock of swine to 360. Why that number? A symbolic number in our culture, as in many others, of a cycle.
360 degrees spatially in a circle, 360 days in a year's temporal cycle, plus five so-called intercalendrical days to bridge the gap. Or maybe it's just random, 360 happens to be in the text by accident, suggestive but unprovable perhaps. What is quite provable is the humanity of this lower class character. Extraordinarily radical in terms of the usual class system portrayals in ancient Greek literature. Basically defined for the most part in work after work as aristocratic snobbery. And Eumaeus is not looked down upon. He is not condescended. He is a genuinely good man. He's not only been faithful to his master, which will turn out to be a touchstone, as Odysseus moves disguised among his people, those who have remained faithful and those who have betrayed. Eumaeus has totally remained faithful, but he is also compassionate, where people like the suitors are basically jerks. Here, Odysseus gives them yet another version of his, I'm from Crete and I'm an old guy down on his luck. Can you take me in for the night? And Eumaeus, even though he is totally distrustful of this guy, he totally thinks this guy is a con artist. He thinks that uh, he's bad news and that he's headed towards the palace to try to do a con job on Penelope because one thing that Odysseus adds to his story this time is that he claims to have met Odysseus recently and says Odysseus is returning, spread the word. What Eumaeus concludes is this guy is a liar and he's going to use that in order to get some money, some kind of reward out of Penelope, a woman desperate for news of her husband. So it's like an internet scam. Um, and yet, it's a whole night out there, and this guy's down and out, and Eumaeus not only lets him into the hut, but gives his only cloak on a cold night to this guest, the guest-host relationship again, but going beyond the letter of the law into real compassion. And this is not lost on Odysseus, and perhaps it's not lost on us too. There is something, as there will be so often, that seems to evoke the Christian tradition to us, especially the New Testament. More on this later, perhaps, but there are countless times in the second half where it seems as if the poet has been acquainted with the New Testament, even though this is utterly impossible. It's the time frame doesn't work out at all. And yet, there are so many moments when Odysseus, moving in disguise from claiming to be of humble or origins seems so much 
like the reaction to Christ in his humble disguise. I'm just a carpenter's son from Nazareth. And it's a touchstone. Those who listen to him and treat him kindly versus the scribes and the Pharisees and the others couldn't possibly be influence what you make of the parallel. Well, that could go a long way and perhaps we'll pursue it further at another point. But to move forward here, from book 14, we leave Odysseus sleeping in the hut of Eumaeus and Athena goes back to collect Telemachus. It's time to gather our forces and we realize that we have left Telemachus parked and idling since book four and it's now book 15. Time to get him back. So Athena races to Lacedaemon, uh, later called Sparta, to the home of Menelaus and Helen where Telemachus has been a guest and gives a false story. Oh my God, I just got an email. Your mom is giving into pressure. She's about to marry one of the suitors, which is a complete lie. Here we go. Athena's a good liar too, and she uses it as an instrument in a good cause. So back they race across the plain Telemachus and his buddy, the son of Nestor, Pisistratus, all the way from Lacedaemon inland to Pylos on the coast. Both of these real places that have been excavated and are well known, whether the characters ever existed or not. And as they approach the outskirts of Pylos, poor Telemachus, is a little bit uncomfortable. He finally sort of stammers out to Pisistratus, well, look, I know proper manners, and I know that what that would usually entail is that I stop at the palace and say goodbye to your dad, and once again, thank you for all the hospitality he has shown. But, man, this is an emergency. I'm in a tremendous hurry. And your dad, you know, he's old and he talks and talks and talks. By the time he says goodbye and finishes, it'll be three days later. And Pisistrasus says, yeah, I know, I know. I'll make excuses for you. Get on your ship. And so Telemachus does. But before the ship can leave, up comes running up the dock, a frantic figure with some hostile other figures in pursuit of him, and begs to be taken on board lest his enemies kill him. And his name is Theoclemenos, and he will turn out later to be a sort of prophet or seer who goes into trances and suddenly tells the future but here he's a complete stranger with a, another story. Which stories do you believe? Which stories do you not? And it could be crucial to you. 
be careful, as I always put it almost as an aphorism, be careful what stories you believe. Though on the other hand, be careful of the stories you disbelieve. That can be equally fateful. Ah, uh, that carpenter's kid from Nazareth, you're saying he's the son of God? Oh, come on. You know, look at him. I went to high school with him, you know. He's not the son of anything except a carpenter. Careful what stories. It's we're, we're always being asked to choose. Politics at the present moment in the United States is a battle of contending stories. Some of them, yeah, lies. And some of them, yeah, damn lies, as Mark Twain said. And it can be fateful which you accept and which you reject. At any rate, here is a moment of adulthood. The decision is left to Telemachus. And he thinks hard for a minute, looks at this guy, tries to assess him, takes a deep breath and says, okay, get on board. Makes this decision, takes the risk. That's adult male behavior. He is achieving that adult role that we have seen him slowly growing into. It's a big moment, really. And Theoclamenos will turn out to be a useful ally. I didn't list him previously, but perhaps should have, although he's an ally of a different sort. Therefore, we are headed back uh, at the end of book uh, 15. We are headed back to Ithaca and in book 16, which we will take up next time, Telemachus arrives at Eumaeus's hut. So, okay, now it's a party. Odysseus is here in disguise, Eumaeus and now Telemachus. And we are going to get the big reunion between father and son, if you can even call it a reunion, because Telemachus has never even seen his father, or if he did, it was when he was an infant, and does it count? That is a good dramatic moment for us to pause and say, we'll come back next week and take up the increasingly exciting action narrative from there.